This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Often looking for new ways of um, evangelizing, aren't we? And uh, recently I had a, a postcard put through my door which was inviting me to join something called Nextdoor. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that, but it basically it, it gives an opportunity for you in the local area to get to know your neighbours a bit better. And so I put the app on my phone and I started to, to listen into it. And um, there's been some really good things on there about the local community. It deals with about 3,000 houses around where we live in Burton. And um, there's been lots of sort of things for sale, but also there's been lots of community things on there and opportunities for evangelism. So somebody recently wrote in, I've just moved into the area, I've got no friends at all, what's happening? Has anybody got anything they, you know, they could invite me to? And so there is room for evangelism. But the other day, a, a heading came up on this app, which took my breath away a little bit. It's called, the heading was Chinese Takeaway. And I don't know if you've ever been to my house and I've served you a Chinese Takeaway, so just listen to this and I'll apologise if you have. So this person written in, he says, I hate to do this about a local business, but I feel that everybody deserves to know. Be aware. Last night we ordered a Chinese meal from a local takeaway. I won't name them at this stage. But just after I'd been to pick it up and I was driving home, I heard the bag rustling and moving. And I thought, what on earth is that? Has something got into the bag? I thought I could see a little pair of eyes peering out. However, I was driving, so I leaned forward and I picked up the bag and I put it on the passenger seat. And there it was again, more rustling and little eyes looking out from behind the prawn crackers. I thought, this has got to be a rat or a mouse or something. So I carefully pulled the bag open and there it was, a Peking duck. (laughs) You lot are so slow, come on. I'll raise it up so you can't see me now. Anyway. still sinking into some people now, isn't it? Okay, so um, as you know, as part of the church, we're looking through the book of Acts at the moment. And today, um, I'm, I've been tasked to look at Acts 25, verses 1 to 22. And this is a fairly sizable passage of scripture. So if you can follow it in your Bibles or on your phones, that would be great. And basically, this is a narrative about Paul's imprisonment. And he's going to be in prison and house arrest from this time forward in the book till the end of Acts 28. But today is one of the last actual dialogues that we ever have from Paul before his death, some seven or eight years down the road. He was in prison in Jerusalem, and now he will be in prison in Caesarea. So I'm going to read some of the passage and then explain some things as we go along. Is that okay with everybody? I hope it is, because I've got no other backup plan, so you're stuck with me. So let me just pray before I start. Lord God, I pray you'll take the words that we use today, Lord God. Father, would you... Ensure they don't return void. Father, will you do something in our hearts this morning through your words, Lord God? I ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so just briefly and quickly recapping on what's happened immediately before the passage we're going to look at today. We know that the Jews in Ephesus had tried to kill Paul. Indeed, they dragged him out of the temple at one stage and they were going to kill him right there. But the Roman commander heard about this and he sent 500 soldiers to rescue Paul. Paul then gets transferred to Caesarea and he's placed under the authority of the governor, Felix. Now, other cat foods are available. Felix questions Paul, but he can't find anything wrong. 
Indeed, there are no charges that can be sustained or evidence, nothing of any substance against this man. But to appease the Jews, Felix leaves Paul locked up for another two years. So now we transition to the next governor and get introduced to him. He's a man called Festus. He's mentioned by Flavius Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, as being better than or an improvement on Felix. He was by, uh, by the book governor who loved the Roman law, but he didn't tolerate religious stuff very well. But he quickly understood that Paul was being charged for something none other than just being part of a religious controversy. So let's get into the chapter. So chapter 26, verses 1 to 2. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him, and he presented the charges against Paul. It's interesting here that they used Jerusalem, and there was much unrest in the region at this time, and it made the Jews happy that their city was being recognised, and that helped some way towards keeping the peace. But little did anybody know that probably six years down the road, Josephus wrote that 1.1 million Jews were to be killed by the Roman army. So it's a peace, but a tenuous peace. Verse 3 to 4. They requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. And Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Looking back at at Acts 23, verse 12, we know that these men had already tried to kill Paul. And 40 men had made an actual vow that they were not going to eat or drink until Paul was murdered. Now remember, this is now two years down the road in this point in time. And I don't know if those people had eaten or drunk by that stage. But this says something about how destructive hate in the human heart can be. It can go so deep that we don't think clearly anymore. We see that Festus's response is good and measured, and knowing that they wanted to kill who he thought was an innocent man, he says in verse 5, Let some of your leaders come with me, and if this man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So he's basically saying, let's do this by the book, bring your charges. It's basically a rerun of what have happened between Paul and Felix. Verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And Luke wants us to see here the huge parallels with Jesus as he was being passed backwards and forwards from Herod to Pontius Pilate before his death. This is another classic washing of the hands. I find nothing wrong with this man. Let's move him out of our sight and move on. Verse 8, then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Note here, Paul's main goal is not to be freed from prison. His main goal is to do the work that Christ has called him to do. And he realises that sometimes that mission is done in chains and sometimes it's not. Verse 9, Festus wishing to do the Jews a favour, exactly the same as Felix, let's keep the peace at all costs, says to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Festus is thinking here, 
Can I let Paul hang himself out to dry with this question? Or maybe he'll back down. And he gives him the choice, as this will placate the Jews. And Paul answers, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them, and I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12, after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. I find that a most remarkable statement in verse 11. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. How many of us might say that in the situation that Paul was in? Paul has communicated things an ordinary person cannot say with any confidence. Now, we as Christians can say these things with full confidence and assurance. Paul is not afraid of death, and we as Christians should not fear death, because death is not the end. So Jesus dealt with the sting of death on the cross. He took our punishment upon himself so that we could be forgiven and we could be declared righteous and restored in our relationship with God the Father. We are to boldly proclaim the gospel with confidence, to serve wherever Christ has called us to serve, without fear of death, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 verse 21. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Now, the Caesar at that time was Nero. You will have heard of him, no doubt. He was the emperor that burnt Rome to the grounds and killed hundreds of people. So he appeals to the higher courts. But it's part of Paul's wonderful strategy. As soon as he knows where he is going, he's going to Rome. And Paul is giving testimony in Jerusalem And now he has the opportunity of doing exactly the same in Rome to the most powerful man in the known world. Verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. So enter King Herod Agrippa II, the last Herod ever mentioned. He brought up the end of that dynasty. Herod the Great had killed all the firstborn. The next Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. His father was the one who was responsible for imprisoning Peter. And here comes Agrippa, king of the northern kingdom, and he's come to pay respects to the governor of the southern kingdom, Festus. And he wonders, can I make any inroads into this man, Paul? Verse 14, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king, and he said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not a Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they come here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. And I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. He was just a Roman man dealing with Jewish law. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. 
Festus gives a clear and correct account in the context of Roman law. As a Roman citizen, wherever you were posted across the Roman Empire, you had the right to face your accusers and defend yourself in Rome. Paul hasn't broken any laws against anybody. Festus has no idea what to actually blame Paul for or why he continues to keep him in prison. Indeed, this is the fourth trial Paul has undergone, and even now there is no evidence to convict him. I just want to stop there for a second, because as I was preparing for this, I felt the Holy Spirit just quicken something to me. And, and I, he said to me, I feel there'll be two people there in church this morning that feel exactly the same as that. You've been accused of something, falsely accused of something, subject to almost a trial in your life. And if you're here, and if that's right, that if I've heard what the Holy Spirit was saying, I'd love to pray for you at the end of this service. So if you feel you've been subject to false accusations and you just cannot shake it off, I'd love to pray for you later on. Okay, verse 22. Sorry, 21. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for Caesar's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Then Graham next week is following up on what Paul says and does when he faces King Agrippa. And this story, the only man who is in chains is the only man who is truly free. The rest with all their perceived responsibilities and powers were actually powerless. It's they who are in bondage and only the gospel Paul preaches could ever set them free. And can I encourage you to always be ready to give an account or defence when anybody asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Always be ready to give witness to Christ working in your life. Do this for your children if you have them, because they can grow up in a church with a Sunday school environment, and then when they get out into the world, if you haven't taught them how to defend the faith, there is then a danger that they can fall off the spiritual map. And in closing in this section, I want to put today's narrative in the context of Paul's overall walk with God. You see, Paul... The Apostle Paul has got right under my skin. The way he has conducted his life up until this point has made me feel very uncomfortable. And it poses some big questions that I need to answer. So let me share where I'm coming from. There's no doubt in my mind, whichever perspective you look at Paul from, he is a most remarkable man. Born and named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He grew up in a devout Jewish home and was thoroughly involved in the temple. He hated Christians with a passion, and it says in 1 Galatians 13 and 14, he persecuted the church beyond measure. And he was instrumental in the stoning of Stephen. And then we find in chapter 9, he has this, amazing encounter with God on the road to Damascus. 
And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And why are you persecuting the church? But God always had a strategy. He always has the right man in the right, and the right woman in the right place at the right time to fulfill his purposes. And we know that Ananias is sent to Saul and he prays for him and these scales fall off his eyes. And then for the next 20 years, Paul is immersed in spreading the gospel and building the church. And then we get to this um, passage in 2 Corinthians 11. And let me just read this. This is about Paul. So 2 Corinthians, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. This is Paul speaking. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And Paul was about 50 years old when he wrote that letter to the church in Corinth. And it made me stop and think. If I was writing that letter and I was putting down everything that had happened to me, what would my heart be like after all of that? What would motivate me to continue? And I, it threw up so many questions for me. Why would anybody voluntarily go through such suffering, persecution and hardship? What motivated this man? What drove him on? What about you and I? Perhaps we're counting the cost of serving in God's church at the moment. Maybe you suffered one shipwreck too many, or you're maybe constantly on the move, perhaps trying to avoid God's love. The thing that is undeniable about Paul is that he would share the gospel even if it meant severe hardship and persecution. And here's the scale of it. Getting beaten up, maybe killed, or sharing the gospel. There was no question, never any hesitation in Paul's mind Share the gospel on every occasion. Remarkable. Paul lived for this. And when you read this account and the account Graham will be preaching and looking at in, in chapter 26, I find it so liberating and so inspiring. But Paul would be the first to say, it's not about me, lest I should boast. And it's made me want to see more of this grace at work in my own life. Enjoying, not dreading or feeling intimidated, but boldly doing what I've been placed on this earth to do, to be his servant, his ambassador, to go and make disciples. And my question is, do we, do we see sharing the good news as what we live for? Or has the world become a little more attractive than the glory of God's kingdom? 
I think in my mind I sometimes ask, how much am I prepared to give? And what do I want in return? As opposed to Paul, who said to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was a win-win situation for Paul and a lose-lose situation in the way I was visualising it. And that's why this man and his life has got right underneath my skin. Paul's passion for God's kingdom was not destroyed by hardship or persecution. In fact, these things seem to have motivated and inspired him onwards. It's the same for you and I when we face trials and opportunities. And I realise that not many of us will ever be called to do the exploits Paul did or face the hardships he faced, but some of us will be, while others are called to serve in this local church right here. But whether we are called to stay or move away, let's do it with a renewed passion for God's kingdom and glory. You see, our God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. Let's let our imaginations run right this morning. Amen. Dave, I wonder if you can just come up, please. just really feel that um, <clears throat> God wants to do something in his church this morning and it's not necessarily taken out of the passage I've just preached on but I just feel the Holy Spirit wants to restore something you see I'm passionate about this church I'm not always here now because I'm based in Burton but I'm passionate about what happens to this church and I'm up to date with most things that are going on here because I meet with Graham in the office and David in the office on a Monday and I speak to lots of you during the week and I've been part of this church for nearly 20 years now and so I've grown up with a lot of you and I want to thank all of you that dutifully day in day out pick up responsibility in this building and for this building you life group leaders you youth leaders you young people's workers you welcome teams you worship musicians you always do it with such a dutiful attitude and I don't know if there's a more hard working church that I've ever been part of but God was saying to me that sometimes we do things from a sense of duty not for the passion sometimes we're drawn to a rotor or a meeting because it's our duty to be there we have to be seen to be there like Tim was exhorting us to be at the prayer meeting next week or to get to a life group and we think yeah I need to do that it's what Christians do but some of us have lost that passion about doing that it's become quite hard actually and I've just got this feeling this morning that some of you fall into that bracket and I do I thought, there's so many things every single day I could put my hand to in the church to make sure the church 
is ticking over and the rotors are up to date and the schedules are done and I've done what I needed to do. But am I doing it with the passion that Paul had? No, I'm not. And as I was preparing for this, I, I recognised that I almost went off the pace. I just let work, just let the, the organisation in the church take over. And my passion for God has taken a back seat. And I can't be the only one here that feels like that. You life group leaders that serve the church so well. Other people here in leadership. And so I just... I just want... I think you just need to be... If that's you, you just need to be a little bit humble this morning and say, that's me. I just want a touch of the Holy Spirit. Because actually, yeah, I'm going through the motions at the moment. When I first became a Christian, I had this wonderful passion that it was just, I was on the edge of everything. You know, the next corner, God was going to do something. And that's just sort of been worn away a little bit. But I believe that God, through his Holy Spirit, wants to restore his passion for the church this morning. But it will mean that some of you just have to stand where you are in a second. And we're just going to pray. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come in, to sweep in and restore what maybe the locusts have eaten away over the months and weeks and years. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I've never actually had a passion for the local church or for God. In which case, please, can I ask you to stand in a minute? there's a sense of restoration of passion but there's also I believe the sense that God was saying to me this morning there's a recommissioning of people this morning as well as Joshua was commissioned by God to cross the river and take the city there was a commissioning of him and I feel that God wants to commission people again this morning so can I ask if any of what I've said applies to you this morning? Just to stand, please. standing can I just ask you to go and lay a hand on those that are please can you just this is all about the church family this is about just going and supporting and loving one another so just make sure everybody that's standing please has got someone praying for them say we 
put our trust in you this morning, Lord. We trust you for the future. We trust that you will never break a bruised reed or snuff out a smouldering quick, Lord God. We trust you in those matters. And we say, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh upon this church again today, Lord God. This church that, that I love with a passion. Would you meet those that are standing, those that are humbly before you, or just bowing their knee and saying, Yeah, Lord, I need your touch in my life again. I need your zeal. I don't want to go through the motions, Lord God. I need your perspective on life again. I need to know that you're calling me. I need to know I'm in the right place with you. So come, Spirit of God, would you just sweep across this auditorium? standing this morning trusting God he is unshakable unmovable unquenchable he is the rock on which our lives are built on he is the source of our joy speak against disillusionment and despair this morning where the enemy has got in and snatched some of the peace away from you dear folk that are standing we speak to the enemy and say you have no place in these temples of your Holy Spirit blood of Jesus into these dear folk this morning. Father, help them to brush the dust off their feet as it were, Lord God, and run the race with perseverance again, Lord. Oh God, let that joy rise up like that wellspring in their lives, Father, this morning, I pray in Jesus' name.
So I'm aware of time and um, some of you folk have to pick up your children. So please, please go and do that. But if you've been prayed for, please don't rush away. And if you are one of the two people that I felt that God was saying that have been falsely accused and you just need some prayer for that, I'd love to pray for you. Please come and find me after the service. so much for being with us this morning please go and get yourselves some tea and coffee and donuts praise God Sunday morning.